0: Welcome to the Mad in America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mad in America. This is your host for today, Ayurdhidhar. I'm an assistant professor of psychology at Mount Mary University and a spotlight interviewer for Mad in America. Our guest for today is Dr. Dana Becker. She's currently professor emeritus of social work and social research at Bryn Mawr College. Dr. Becker has also practiced as a psychotherapist for over three decades. She's the author of numerous books and articles, and her interests range from criticisms of concepts of stress and positive psychology to medicalization of female suffering via the PTSD diagnosis and earlier, the borderline diagnosis. We will talk about this and a lot more. Dr. Becker, welcome to Mad in America.
1: Oh, thanks very much.
0: So, let's jump into this. Um, now, you have r- raised concerns about something called therapeutic culture. Could you just briefly tell us what it is um, and what are some of your concerns and criticisms of therapeutic culture?
1: In, therapy, in what we call therapeutic culture, which is the culture we're all swimming in, mm-hmm. the air around us is infused with psychological uh, concepts, values and institutions predicated on those. So um, the idea is that in therapeutic culture, the psyche as, is the principal object of our attention. So it's the psychological is seen as a main source of problems in our society, and the health, and I put in quotes, of our psyches seem to be an ultimate goal. So These shared assumptions about the psyche and its importance and the importance of the self um, shape our values, they shape our behaviors and even institutions. So a major critique then is that this emphasis on the psyche and the self really makes the world less visible makes the problems of society, the structural problems, the institutional problems, less visible to us. And because I have done a lot of work looking at uh, sort of how individualism shapes our psychological culture or the therapeutic culture, I think... We have to go back historically and consider that our American reliance on ideas about individualism really also shape therapeutic culture.
0: Okay, so um, my next question would be: You're also a psychotherapist. So how do you how do you bring this consciousness into your work with your patients or your clients? So how do you do that? How does that affect your work?
1: What I believe is that we have to bring context. To, into therapy. We have to bring social context into therapy, but we also can't stop in the therapy room. We have to understand that a 45-minute session does not a world make. Mm-hmm. That if, for instance, women whose problems have long been medicalized see their own problems as medical problems to be resolved. And if we or somebody like me as a therapist doesn't see all problems that way, that that's a perspective that I have to bring. It doesn't mean that if somebody suffers from clinical depression, you know, we're not going to help them to get medication for that. But it's also true that as a family therapist and a person who's worked a lot with women, I'm going to be asking about not only the family context, the marriage, all of, or the relationship, all of that, but also understanding the client's uh, perspective on the world Mm -hmm. and, um, and on gender and how, as, you know, if I see women, how women see themselves. And I have to tell you that it's very interesting for me to have spanned several decades doing this work. Because when I started out, nobody ever came in saying something like, quote, I'm bipolar, Mm -hmm. right? You'd never hear that. That was unknown and nobody was doing self-diagnosis. You know, as I continued to work, women would come in and say things to me like, my mother thinks that I'm bipolar. So I don't even like people calling themselves a diagnosis. You know, they don't say I have bipolar disorder. These days it's I'm this and Mm -hmm. I'm that. Um, So when I would ask, you know, the origins of the mother's belief or the client's belief about why you know this diagnosis seemed to suit often they'd say to me i remember in the 80s there was a a book called mood swings which i fortunately never read but i i made an attempt not to read and um some clients and their parents or their partners would read these things And immediately say, oh, if you're angry this day and angrier this day than the last day, you know, that must mean you have mood swings and that means you're bipolar. So for me as a therapist, to use this as an example, to unpack this is to find out what that means in terms of the context in which those ideas arose. Mm -hmm. So what's going on there Sometimes the woman is feeling justifiably angry, but her partner or her parents are saying there's something wrong with that, essentially. And why are you, you know, and you're angry and that means you have mood swings and that means you have a diagnosis. And this is how emotion gets medicalized that doesn't mean there is no such thing as bipolar disorder i'm not saying that i you know people are always criticized when you take a position like this it's not as extreme as people assume you know and when you're a therapist you have to, you have to delve deeply enough to understand the context of what the client is bringing
0: so i think what you're referring to um often we have especially at mad in america we address some criticisms of psychiatry but what you're talking about is a larger societal cultural yes. narrative that exists and it changes yes. our definition yes I, get it? I have students who um who would come in saying something similar that i am this and i have a therapist and she won't give me a diagnosis but i know i am this that's right you know? i mean there are other
1: concepts too that are just right. they're equally important that are not that are Diagnostic in a certain way for the therapist, because I'd have clients coming in saying, for instance, um, oh, I'm feeling really terrible this week. I'm having a pity party. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm really interested, you know, just for myself in unpacking ideas like this where do women get the idea that when they're sad or upset about something that's going on, that they're being self-pitying and the pity party aspect is really denigrating, Mm -hmm. you know? So for a therapist not to be inquisitive or curious about that is really problematic to me because if I understand something about um, some forms of, of gender socialization, then w- that woman bringing that idea to me is bringing a whole world of gendered associations.
0: So let me ask you this these psychologized narratives, right, uh, uh, or therapeutic narratives that right. can take issues of power and psychologize them. Right. Why do you think they've become so powerful and so pervasive? Like, is it, is it a matter of who does it benefit?
1: Well, we won't get into the sort of history of the psychological professions, but there has been, you know, there certainly is um, benefit for the psychological professions which have proliferated over the decades there is benefit in the medicalization of human problems there's no question about that you know back in the day when the diagnostic and statistical manual first came out number one it was probably less than an inch thick you know now it's you know it's so bloated Mm -hmm. that you know anything can be called a psychological problem Mm -hmm. and so the the professions have benefited greatly and the number of psychological professions have proliferated. So now you have professional counseling and you have, and social work, which used to be a different kind of profession. The other part of it comes, I think, I think has a lot to do with the gendered nature of ideas about emotion because women have always been, the, the primary candidates for psychotherapy for self help books for all kinds of psychological advice and when oprah came along and some others you know it became more popular to consider talking about problems that had been more um deeply hidden or at least hidden from public view i also believe that the that our own um reliance, our own sort of veneration of science. Uh, and I'm talking about this historically, because now there's an anti-science camp and a science camp and so on. But until fairly recently, uh, from, the, from the 19th century onward, there, there had been a, a tremendous veneration of science, and the scientization of all phenomena became predicate. To to many things, and this certainly also influenced medicalization. I mean, Freud Freud himself, way back in the day, never wanted psychiatry to become a medical profession. It was really in America that it was decided that you really should have um, you should become a medical doctor, or you had to become a medical doctor in order to become a psychiatrist. Freud never wanted that.
0: I want to kind of ask you about your chapter, since you were talking about context, and your most recent chapter is where has all the context gone, mm-hmm. right? And you talk about what feminist therapy used to be <laughs> and what it has now become. Uh, I'm going to use the word toothless uh, almost, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Could you tell us more?
1: I, I'd have to say that in, this, in in one sense, there really is no feminist therapy mm-hmm. today, Um, There are not people who call themselves feminist therapists. There are people who are feminists who do psychotherapy. And that's very different. And the calling of oneself a feminist means a lot of different things to many, many different people. So in the beginning, there was consciousness raising, a very middle class white phenomenon, right? Uh, Back when, in the day, 60s and 70s. And uh, what Betty Friedan, the mother of uh, what some people call the mother of modern feminism, used to call navel gazing. Mm -hmm. And this was the beginning, actually, of a critique of therapy for women Mm -hmm. as a sort of, oh, you know, do we really want people to be looking inward, you know, rather than looking outward for the source of their problems. Fairly quickly on the ideas that consciousness raising did bring to therapy, which was the idea of bringing the social context into the the therapy room and helping women to achieve greater activism outside the therapy room. Mm -hmm. That quickly became subsumed as professionalization uh, really took over. So it was a fairly short uh, you know, dynamic period, and um, and today I think that when we when people talk about uh, I, people do not use the term feminist therapy anymore. But what I have argued in the um, and what I've seen out in the field actually too, and what I've argued in this chapter is that um, for women uh, trauma. Has become the sort of watchword trauma and and women, <laughs> you know, have become a kind of bundle that I think a lot of therapists who consider themselves feminist would see together. Mm-hmm. So let's figure out how you've been traumatized. Now, in some ways, one could say just as one can say that the therapeutic culture does confer some benefits on people. Um, To talk about traumatic events has become destigmatized or much more destigmatized. So have psychological problems. And this is very helpful to many people. Even back to just to the 1980s, it was rare for therapists to ask a woman if she'd been sexually or physically abused, for example. Uh, This was just not done. Now it's routine. All right, this is this is all good news, you know. It is all good news for these problems to come out of the closet and for the context, for the social and societal context of psychological problems to be visible. Mm -hmm. Having said that, when everything in the world is labeled traumatic, (laughs) there is a loss of meaning. There's no question. I mean, if I'm traumatized because I have, you know, I have too many text messages. You know, as opposed to being traumatized because I've been a prisoner of war. You know, I mean, these are these are things that are labeled traumatic these days. And, and the idea of trauma is lost meaning. The other problem is that those who particularly in America practice therapy uh, assume that every disaster a natural disaster that occurs induces trauma in everyone. This is by research standards simply not the case. And it's interesting to think about the fact that you know when american psychologists for instance went over in in the wake of the tsunamis that happened, you know, a, a decade or more ago, you know, they wanted to offer psychological help to the victims of trauma and the people there were saying, "Yeah, I don't have a house." Mm-hmm. You know, I need some place to to st- to stay warm, and I, I my family has no food. And you're talking to me about being traumatized. You know, it's also true that uh, the the events of 9/11 were cast uh, very tightly. were were placed very tightly within the trauma narrative, to the, to the extent that ten years after. Uh, Uh, 9-11, the American Psychological Association's house organ, which is called the American Psychologist, which all psychologists receive if they belong to the APA, had to basically uh, put out an entire issue that was nothing but an a research apologia for all of the psychological work that had insisted that everybody was going to be traumatized. Everybody who had witnessed or seen it on TV or the children who were exposed, everybody was going to suffer. It turned out, as researchers continued to study this phenomenon, that this was a very small percentage of the population. But now when research is done, it turns out that a fairly high percentage of the population will say that they've experienced at least one or more traumatic events in their lifetime. And this is probably a gross overstatement, but the use of the term is legion.
0: And I guess that that kind of ties in with Ian Hacking's idea of the looping self, that what yeah. happens when you have a concept that kind of has a life of its own and changes your self-definition and then your experience. I have wondered if yeah. um, if trauma probably is the next biggest thing that has come after the medicalization narrative. Do you have any stories or examples of how specifically trauma has been uh, co-opted or absorbed, you know, and further medicalized women's problems?
1: Well, actually, this comes down to, I think the narrative about ptsd i mean I, the way that i would frame this is in terms of the change that occurred when the criteria for ptsd were transformed back in the 80s mm-hmm. um in the diagnostic manual in the dsm 3 so um initially events that were causative of PTSD had to be considered outside the realm of human experience. Many, many feminists agitated for these criteria to be broadened so that women whose experience of sexual, physical, and physical abuse and other forms of abuse would then be able to be included and that. PTSD diagnosis could be applied to them. Now initially, I have to say to you, I was really taken with this because I was studying the borderline diagnosis, which I can't I could not abide and still can't at the time, and felt, well, You know, PTSD is the only diagnosis, it was at the time the only diagnosis that had actual external situational causes. And I thought this is a wonderful thing. So we expand the diagnosis. Well, what I found to my horror and changed my position in in writing about it, I changed my position three, you know, I did a complete 360, I, I was te- I was horrified at how often the PTSD diagnosis was just slapped on women. They didn't meet all the criteria. And they said, okay, well, I've been, you know, I, I've had this abuse. And it's not to say we shouldn't take note of the abuse and its, it's ill effects, its after effects. But I, I became sort of horrified to think of this being another having become another tool of women's medical the medicalization of women's suffering and um so i think in this sense if we talk about the, the trauma narrative uh feeding into the ptsd diagnosis that's how i'm thinking about it and one of the great uh, i think a, a terrific um bit of research done by my friend and colleague Jean Marisek and Diane Kravitz, when they interviewed, this is back in the 90s, interviewed a host of feminists, who, a therapist who called themselves feminist therapists. They were quoted really as saying, you know, I, this is the only diagnosis that I ever give. It's not that I give it to every woman. This is the only diagnosis I ever give. And I tell people, well, you have PTSD and this is a normal reaction to trauma. Well, first of all, PTSD symptoms aren't a normal reaction to trauma. (laughs) Otherwise, we wouldn't be calling it a disorder. So this also worried many of us and I think came along after PTSD as a diagnosis had been much broadened and the tent became larger and larger and included more and more and more women.
0: To add to that, uh, another problem is, well, first of all, PTSD being a normal reaction to trauma just doesn't kind of translate when we look at other places in the world. No, culturally, it's just
1: absolutely terrible.
0: And the second issue is that we necessitate that verbalization, that talking about it it has to be the only way to deal with, to process trauma. (laughs) Uh, So that, again, becomes a problem that you have to go to a professional and you have to talk about it, and that's the only way you can process this. Which, again, it just doesn't work like that.
1: No. And, and we, you know, as cultures, we decide, you know, what is normal, right, and what is not. So Derek so- Summerfield talks about this, and it's really wonderful work. You know, it's sort of, what do we in our society or some other society call normal? What do we say we should have to endure or we should be able to endure right. without calling it a problem. Mm-hmm. So if we think about something like the response of, of the British during the bombing of London, for example, right. and uh, you know, the fact is that the Londoners were not calling themselves traumatized. There wasn't any language and there was no narrative for that. There was an attitude of you know, keep calm and carry on, stiff upper lip and all the rest. Now, if people, of course, were suffering horribly, then there was no real way to cope with that, even in war. I mean, shell shock was considered a humiliation for soldiers. All of this was terrible. And yet, it was so different from our 9-11s, response. It's very interesting. Probably the same percentage of people were utterly traumatized and very disturbed by the bombings in London as as were disturbed in Manhattan, you know, on on the day of of 9-11. And yet we had that different discourse.
0: You've written a book, uh, One Nation Under Stress, and you've kind of said that the side disciplines overall focus more on the effects of stress and being stressed out rather than, you know, looking at the causes of stress right? and uh, the way our individualized kind of culture plays a part in it. So mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about what are the issues with the way we talk about stress? Yeah. And maybe th- if you have a story or an example, that okay. would be really
1: cool. Well, to make a little bridge between our last discussion about trauma and, and stress, I think both of them, both of these concepts now share the same kind of problem. Um, the cause and the effect are conjoined in a way that make them one, with the exception that it's the emotional response that we focus on. So the thing that stresses you out, the stressor, and your reaction to it are both stresses. They're stress. They're both. But what we focus on is the emotional the feeling of being stressed. I talk a lot in that book about this con- this sort of crazy concept, American idea of balance, right? Yeah. For instance, say that you are a working pa- mother. I'll, I'll use mothers because women this is women are targeted for this stress discussion discourse. But, you know, so you're a working woman You may be uh, working shift work. You know, you may not be well paid or you might be a professional woman. Okay, so this uh, this this discourse of balance applies to everybody equally, even though the the stressors are quite different. You know, the profession, the woman who's the CEO who can have a nanny is not in the same position as the woman who finally finds out that she's working a crazy shift this week and she had no notice and can't get any child care. But what we're supposed, but there's a middle class idea about balance that's supposed to apply to everybody. and that is that we're supposed to achieve a sort of balance between what we're doing out there, what we're doing in the family, and that uh, we're supposed to take really good care of ourselves, no matter what the outer stressors are, what the context of our lives are. And therefore, if we can do that, we won't be stressed out and we won't be angry and we'll be able to take care of all the people we have to take care of. And I think that this promotes and really it supports the, the feminization of care. Well, when I say feminization of care, I shouldn't really call it that. It's been, care has been women's province in this country for, you know, as long as uh, any of us can remember in historical time, particularly uh, since when industrialization came to America, really. So uh, women Bourgeois women, middle class women were to stay home while men went to the office. They were no longer full partners on the farm. They were no longer just taking a share of the work and everybody, children, partners, women themselves taking equal share in the work. It became women's province to care for the family, for the children to take care. As women As middle class women particularly flooded into the workplace in the 1980s and beyond, the expectation of care did not change. But now the expectation of balance has become another weight on the shoulders of women. You know, well, I can I can use myself as an example. I can tell you, I never called myself stressed out the entire time. I had no money. I was a single parent. I was doing my doctorate one course at a time, and taking care of my son, a dog, the school turtle, everything else, and um, and uh, I I I that's when the uh, superwoman narrative was in vogue and my expectation was that i do everything perfectly so from that from that era in the middle class life we went on to this idea about balance and juggling that we should be able to juggle multiple things if we can't if something drops it's our fault we blame ourselves and we should we should indulge in um, we should buy more commodities that will help us, you know. And of course, if you're poor, <laughs> and if you you can't afford to take the time, have the money, or have the support necessarily to do the kind of caretaking things that middle class culture tells us we should do.
0: That's where the narrative of self care enters, and uh, right. is the same thing that self care right. is so important. And I have to kind yeah. of. Break that for my students very often, like, you know, candles in a bath are not going to solve problems that emerge from poverty. And, you
1: know, but when we call it stress, we then flatten, you know, that you're quite right. I mean, I, I, what you're saying is exactly what I've been saying, and it's so true, you know, uh, but the idea of stress kind of flattens this out. If we say we're stressed, we can say, oh, this is a problem. It's my problem to solve also.
0: So would I be right in saying that stress is one way to kind of individualize this and then the yeah. diagnosis from borderline to PTSD are more, more specific ways uh, to individualize certain bigger problems around us? Would that be accurate?
1: Well, I think that I don't want to put the borderline diagnosis sort of in the stress bucket necessarily. So many of the women who are diagnosed borderline now are women who have suffered, you know, the extremes of abuse of all kinds, neglect and invalidation. So uh, it, it's, you know, I, I don't want to sort of throw that into to the stress bucket. But I, I think that stress is a sort of non-diagnostic tool, mm-hmm. you know, for those, those women, who tend to, as many of us do, take our cues from popular culture.
0: Uh, maybe an example or a personal story. I have a three-week-old baby now, and uh, anytime I feel kind of a little overwhelmed, a part of my mind is going postpartum depression, postpartum depression. Ah. doesn't matter if I've read about <laughs> massive criticisms of the concept. I understand how culturally like narrow it is, and the fact that I have a broken ankle and a it's just me and my husband. If I was back in India, I would have had 18 relatives helping us out. Right. Um, right. But it's interesting that despite having all of those, like knowing that there are these massive external factors and I have to go back to school um, <laughs> and being a critical psychologist still in the back of my head, the postpartum depression light just keeps, you know, um, I'm like, wow, that the the power of these narratives is so strong. It doesn't yeah. matter if you know yeah. get aware of them. It's it's terrible. Yeah.
1: Well, and if we're just stressed out, let me go back to the stress concept. If we're just stressed out, then then we if we because we blame ourselves for not taking better care of ourselves. There's no need then to go outside and say why do we why are we still the only Western industrialized nation that does not have any paid family leave right why is childcare you know why do we not have universal pre all of these things you know and as women will tell you the ones who are the most stressed out doing all of the trying to hold up all all of this they don't have time for activism Right. So this is this is another part of the problem. I'm too stressed to get out there. I can't I don't even have time to call my congressperson or write or, you know, I sign a petition or, you know. So it's a way of easing ourselves, easing our our conscious, our consciences, too, that we can say, well, I'm stressed out. I'll put some candles, you know, take the bubble bath and, you know. Eat more kale and make a smoothie and buy a yoga mat and, you know, and then, of course, when we think about women in our uh, country who don't have the option to do any of those things or have any help. And as you suggest, the community, we're not looking to the community uh, as you would if you were back in India, you know, we're not looking to a community necessarily to to help us with this.
0: There has been a a recent conversation around what is called structural determinants of mental health. Right. right. The, right. the U.N. is talking about it. issues such as racism, poverty, gender discrimination, violence. Right. Um, right. I wonder if it's going to also get co-opted and absorbed or uh, You know, it's just paying lip service, saying structural determinants of mental health, and then going back and doing the same thing, which is, hey, let's do one-on-one therapy. That's what worries me. I mean, if you look at
1: what's happened, say, in poor neighborhoods in the public school system, and I'm very familiar with that. I used to do family therapy, and we worked with the public school systems. You know, If you look at what happens when a child has problems... You know, we can understand discrimination, we can understand the effects of poverty, we can understand bullying, we can understand, you know, all kinds of things that contribute to a child not doing well in school or acting out, having problems. What do we do about that? It's not that we don't understand some of that. What do we do? First, we call the mother in. The mother, only the mother. The mother's problem. Now she takes; she has to take the child to therapy. Often, the therapist is actually not trained to uh, as a family therapist. So the mother is exclu- basically the child is with the therapist, who's very understanding. <laughs> you know, for forty-five minutes a week, mm-hmm. and the child goes back into the environment, which you know, and the mother doesn't have. Any, any more support than she had before, nor does she have any much understanding of what's happening in the therapy because she's not <laughs> included in that. So it's not an exact answer to your question. But you know, when when I looked when I was studying the stress phenomenon, I found some really interesting and crazy popular articles, for instance, about poverty and depression. Yeah. This really worried me. This was the beginning from my to my mind of how we're how these things are getting right. uh, co-opted by the, the established medical establishment. You know, let's treat the depression, right? So many people who are poor, are depressed. <laughs> how do we, you know, this becomes the same problem as the trauma and stress problems. You get this sort of external cause becomes. Shunted aside for the emotional after effects of it, and it's so much easier to deal with the effects. I mean, to deal with discrimination, to deal with poverty and racism, to deal to deal with um, differences in uh, tax dollars going to schools in poor neighborhoods as opposed to affluent neighborhoods, and all. You know, we don't have to deal with that. You know, it creates a perfect uh, environment Mm -hmm. for us to individualize these problems. And it really is a worry, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um, despite the fact that there's really good work going on.
0: Since we're talking about um, kind of being able to ignore larger systemic issues and focusing on only one thing, I'm going to ask you about um, positive psychology. Right. 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 and you have uh, said that there are certain issues with what positive psychology says, you know, at least in a simplified form. Could you tell us, like, what what is it that you've talked about in, you know, problematizing positive psychology and things that it talks about?
1: It's interesting, you know, the same kind of idea that one had about uh, say, PTSD opening up and, oh, we're going to contextualize all these problems, you know. Well, the positive psychologists, you know, you'd think, oh, psychology's turning to context. Psychology has uh, often as a field, as a profession, been really acontextual. One of the things that Gene Marisek and I argued in a couple of pieces, articles that we wrote, uh, was that, first of all, the idea of positive psychology bolstered the profession of psychology at a time when there were great inroads being made by, through managed care, social workers becoming therapists, the professionalization of counseling and all of these things. So a new field, a new area for us. The problem was that it was positive psychology is just about as acontextual as any other form of individual psychology. So I sort of label positive psychology as yet another among the many adjustment psychologies that we have loved in America for decades and decades. And by adjustment psychology, I mean those kind of movements like the mental hygiene movement in which the goal was to produce these happy, healthy, quote, well-adjusted individuals in the terms of the larger society. So for instance when we talk about balance when I was talking about stress and balance before a well adjusted woman by those standards for instance would be a woman who can take care of herself take care of her family you know do all this without a lot of complaint and angst and anger and so on that would be ideal adjustment in those in those terms so the problem is that If you talk about what kinds of families result in children who flourish, and that's the quotation from Seligman and others, you can't do it without thinking about what kind of environment the family is situated in, right? So how do you talk about creating families in which children flourish without thinking about institutions and social context for families you know in what institutions are governing how families raise children and this is different depending on where you are in society in this country right, right. so if we talk about flourishing you know the family itself isn't is too small The nuclear family is much too small an environment to look at. And those of us who've done, I've been trained in multi and trained therapists in multidimensional family therapy, which is a model that looks at the much larger, broader context of families and also attempts to make those connections and help families make those connections with those broader institutions. Otherwise, we can't focus on simply the dynamics of a family and then say we're going to help that family to create well-being among children. Another example, of course, Martin Seligman had a huge contract with the United States government to bring positive psychology to the military so say that you so you have a soldier who's going off to war who's going to he's afraid of being killed who's going to have to presumably kill other people and see maiming and watch other people die. Um, And you're going to inoculate them somehow with positive psychology against these horrors. We're not going to talk about war Mm -hmm. and the phenomenon of war and what it brings. We're not even going to talk about male socialization Mm -hmm. and how we create warriors right? Gender, the gendered creation of warriors. We're not going to talk about any of that. We're just going to train people in how to be more resilient. One of the things that I came upon in reading some a lot in this area when I was writing the book on stress was this concept of moral injury, which is another sort of interior, internalization of a problem that is much larger. When the military talks about moral injury, it's individualizing a problem that's created because there is the existence of war and because of political decisions that are made to create warlike conditions. Um, so we're then saying that we've caused, are we saying the soldier has caused a. More- Moral injury, I'm interested in this because we don't talk about that. We don't talk about soldiers creating moral injury in others. We talk about the moral injury somehow to them. And I think that anything that uses the medicalized language of injury, if we're talking about health and injury, then we're into the land of trauma again. Our entire discussion in many ways just curves in upon itself
0: all right that kind of closes our interview thank you so much oh you're welcome thank you for listening to the madden america podcast visit maddenamerica.com for more news views and updates